Welcome to Talent Management Truths. I'm your host, Lisa Mitchell. I'm a talent management thought partner and results coach, wife, and mom. Talent management leaders are hungry to learn from their peers and want to hear about real-life talent initiatives. This podcast is for and by talent management leaders. My guests and I dig into successes, challenges, and lessons learned from a very practical, not theoretical point of view. You'll discover important insights about how to elevate your confidence and amplify your influence in a role known for being caught in the organizational middle. I'm thrilled to have you listening. So let's get going and hear the truth about talent management today. At the end of the day, when it comes to where you work, do the values really resonate for you? This is a question that today's guest asks regularly of herself at work and of her adult kids. Many organizations have a list of values on the wall in various conference rooms, but are they truly living into those values? Listen into this discussion where we explore what this can actually look like in action. My guest is Lynn Ardizzi. Lynn is Vice President of People and Equity and the CHRO at Centennial College. She previously worked in a senior leadership capacity in the health sector, transportation, and insurance. Lynn has extensive experience in developing and implementing talent strategies that focus on creating an inclusive workplace. She's a key driver of people's engagement at the college, advising the president directly on all things people. Together with her master's degree in education and extensive background in both public and private sectors, Lynn is highly relational and very experienced in building effective partnerships. This was a fun conversation. I know you'll enjoy it. Welcome back to Talent Management Truths. I'm your host, Lisa Mitchell, and today I'm joined by my guest, Lynn Ardizzi. Lynn is the Vice President of People and Equity at Centennial College. She's also the Chief Human Resources Officer. Thank you so much for being here with me today, Lynn, and welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. So let's begin by sharing with our listeners a little bit about your journey because a little bit non-conventional in some ways, some interesting turns along the way. Sure. So you're right. I did kind of get into human resources and, and people and culture in a, in a bit of a different route. I started in English as second language. So I did my degree in history. I did my master's in education. I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Got into ESL just kind of by happenstance spent over a decade in English as a second language. So needless to say, it really, you know, aligned in with what I was keen to do and very interested in doing. I taught at the college level. I taught in a private language school. I did some community programs. And then I did several years of corporate training where we were doing an English as a second language program in their manufacturing area and really building people from baseline language skills to be able to get to a point where they were able to read standing operating procedures. They were able to do, you know, functional documentation. They were able to really pass those audits because it was pharmaceutical manufacturing. So there was a lot of health and safety protocols and they needed to have the language skills to be able to do that work. So Seeing the the fruits of my labor in that space was incredibly rewarding and really enjoyed that. Mm, sounds like it would be mm-hmm. fabulous. So 
So actually, I find it intriguing because you're you you are currently overseeing diversity, equity, inclusion, where you are now at Centennial College, and and I'm just wondering what what you brought with you from those days, mm-hmm. teaching and supporting English as a second language. Yeah, it really you know this does fit into my wheelhouse, but it also fits into my personal values. So people have such bravery to, you know, come to a new country, be previous, we're working as, you know, doctors, lawyers, politicians, you know, really high level positions in in whatever country they were they were originally from. And then coming, learning a, a brand new language, starting in foundational roles or or, you know, in roles that were were by most accounts, you know, either manual labor or working in a service industry. And, and really dedicating their time and energy to learn English as a second language in order to sort of advance themselves and their families. Now, fast forward to where I am now, seeing so many of our international students, and again, coming here, learning the language, going to our programs, you know, be it in transportation or healthcare or any of the great programs that we have, and again, starting a new life in a new country, and they're 18, they're 18, they're 20, they're 22. That is incredibly brave. And, you know, you know what their their families have sacrificed to support them to be here. And it really does bring me full circle to my roots of English as a second language and knowing and seeing those families, you know, when they first came here and what they've sacrificed to support themselves and their kids. Well, and, you know, we were talking before we got started and hit record, too, about how, you know, you've, you've, you've known many people over your career and the different companies you've worked in, both public and private, where, you know, people who trained as doctors and function as doctors or, or lawyers yeah. in their home country had to flee for whatever reason for a, a better or different life here where they wanted yeah. to take care of their families and had to had to literally start way below that. And it wasn't always because they're trying to master the language, but but right. there's partly there's there's there are are obstacles in their way coming into a new labor market. Yeah. Yeah, definitely so. So after you you functioned in supporting ESL for for some time over a decade, what happened next? What what made you move into the next phase? Yeah. So one of the things when I was working in the manufacturing and and leading those ESL programs, you really, you know, you saw kind of the other side because you're the consultant. So you're in, you've got your team of teachers, we're doing our programs. But, you know, I came from a small language school. We were sort of contracted to do that work. And then seeing that, you know, what else ties into that employee experience really made me want to take that next step into going into an organization and not just kind of coming in and delivering programs, but being part of that culture and being part of that broader employee life cycle. So I moved into the insurance sector and I did that for almost another over 10 years, I was at two organizations in property casualty space, had a great career, and I kind of moved up in, in, in various roles, mainly within the learning and development space, but broadened out into more talent management, and then moved on from there into the public sector. And the public sector really kind of tied in a little bit more with some of my own values. So I went to, in transportation, I was part of Metrolinx. 
then I moved into healthcare, which I absolutely loved at Sinai Health System. And then that kind of brought me full circle into back into education at Centennial College. So yeah, it feels like a little bit of my full circle that started in education and now is, you know, sort of sunsetting my career in education. Yeah, yeah it's really interesting. Well, it is It is kind of neat with you and I seem to have a lot in common. My son was born at Mount Sinai. And anyway, there you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's my little my little connection there. So with this, yeah. you know, you were just talking about how you really kind of you've, you've got this connection with mm-hmm. the you know more public sector organizations that you've been in the last little while. Yeah, you know, there's there's always benefits, you know, for everything that you do, and there can also be detractors, right? And so, mm-hmm. what would you see as sort of the main differentiators for from your experience between private and public? I feel really fortunate that I've had both sides of the equation because I, I, you know, at the time in my career, both really suited my needs so well. I think what I really love and appreciate about the public sector is, you know, you really align in with your quote unquote customer. And, you know, although we would never call them our customer, but really the work that we do is to support our people so that they could buy they can provide that best experience for either our students who are, you know, the customer within the education sector or our patient and family caregivers within the healthcare sector. So being able to really see the work that we're doing in supporting our people so that they can provide that best service care, educational experience, you really, you, it's, it's very tangible. And it's interesting because over the pandemic, of course, as you can imagine with the education sector, we've, we've had a lot of our programs go into hybrid learning. We've been working remotely for years, as you could appreciate. And we're just starting to bring our students back onto campus. And we're just starting to come back onto campus through our remote work program. And as great as it is to sort of get up, put on the yoga pads, go downstairs and start work, coming onto campus and seeing the students and like walking by and they're studying and they're, they're having a conversation and, and they're telling me about your program and just being able to have the, that engagement, it just, it, it really brings it back to purpose and why we're here and, and the value that we bring to the institution. So that that really kind of, as I said, you know, fits into my value proposition. It really fits into my wheelhouse. Well, it is it is interesting because, you know, in, in private organizations, I think there's there's some that do a better job of articulating the purpose and the vision and yeah. so that people can align to it and kind of figure yes. out what is it that they want to attach to. And it's harder in some than it is in others. I know in my last organization, it was in retirement living and long-term care. So it was, oh it was healthcare combined with hospitality. It was it's a very interesting, very complex blend. Yeah. This was a private organization. So while it was private, it was within a public arena. And and yeah. I completely relate to what you're saying though about that tangible experience of of you know when I go in to visit homes and seeing you know who we were actually caring for and and the adult caregivers too, you know, that, that were mm-hmm. very central to that care. It it really it made me feel good about what I'd chosen to do. Yeah. Now that's it, that said, there's some things that aren't always as attractive, you know, for some folks. I've known people that were more in sort of the private, particularly financial services 
and have moved into then public for a while and and really appreciate the experience of the people, but found it to be very complex and sometimes slower moving your own decision-making. Can you speak yeah. to that at all? Is there anything, you know, other contrasts that you could call out? Yeah, no, 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 for sure. You know, there there tends to be a little bit more governance, uh, 100%. I mean, you know, when you're a public institution and you have public metrics and you have deliverables against that, it's, it's critical that you have various legislative requirements and governance models that sort of tie into that. Now, having been in the insurance sector as well, you can imagine, again, lots of complexity there too. You look at the the private sector and they can be extremely well oil machines when it comes to strategy when it comes to you know really articulating and laser sharp focus on business optimization and and all those you know really great kind of MBA type of of work that gets done. And sometimes that can be a little bit less of a focus when you get into a sector that is more dedicated towards a healthcare or or transit or, you know, you really have that sort of or or education where you really have that focus on, on achieving that main purpose there. But I would say probably as great as it is to sort of tie the work into delivering against the needs of your claimant or your, you know, your underwriter or your shareholder, it's, there's something about having that more tangible student or or patient or family caregiver that really brings it home. Yeah. And, and and it's interesting, you know, I think this, this conversation can be intriguing for people because I I think it's wonderful that you've worked, you know, on both sides as it were, right? Because what an incredible set of perspectives you bring, right? Different ways to look at issues, challenges, how to get the work done, right? You're, you're going yeah. to different different lenses. And what's interesting is, you know, if you kind of put aside the nature of the institution or the organization. And, you know, as I was sharing with you earlier, you know, I have, I have three boys that are in their 20s and sort of starting off and either wrapping up education or starting off in their, their careers. And I've shared with them that at the end of the day, where you work, so long as you really align in with the culture of an organization, you know, do the values really resonate for you? You know, do you have a leader that that respects and wants to, you know, support you in your career progression that that gives you tough and fair feedback? Like all of those things are so much more important than the extra X amount of dollars that translates into another Starbucks a week. Having joy at work and having that experience where it really drives your energy is what's so critical and so important. So bringing that as a, as a key factor, that's what really keeps people rooted into where, you know, so long as everything else is, you know, you're compensated fairly and everything else. But I think that's what really keeps and retains talent these days. Yeah, I agree with you. How did your sons respond to your advice? Do you think they kind of got <laughs> I love the face. Okay. So it's like you do the for the values yeah. really resonate for you wherever you go, but I'm just like, where are they equipped to know what that means or what they might not expect yet? I have a 16 yeah. year old and I, and I think he's still trying to sort of figure out like, what, what does it even look like to, to work yeah. in a company or, you know, 
No, hundred percent. I've got my oldest one in business. So he kind he gets it yeah, and okay. he kind of is looking at it from he's had some really good leaders that have have, you know, mentored him and, and have supported him. And he was really fortunate to do some incredible summer jobs. Did a couple, you know, stint with my husband's company, did one at my company at the time and, and was able to sort of get a little bit of that under his belt. So he kind of gets it. And it's interesting, the the middle one is in the entertainment industry. So he's on film sets and he's talked about where there's a greater amount of respect on certain sets than others. So his Uh, wheelhouse and his value proposition is how are we treating the crew? How are we treating the actors? Like that is that, I mean, not that he can pick and choose at this early stage of his career, but I mean, he really gets a lot of appreciation for when he's on a, a, a set that's, that is highly respectful of others and and brings that into it. And then the other one's wrapping up his work in healthcare. So he doesn't, he'll be, he'll be finding his job soon enough. Yeah. It is interesting. Like when you talk about the middle one being on film sets and so on, you know, yeah. there's that awareness, that, that clarity, that respect is important for me and those around me. Like he's already yeah. here on that and that you can extrapolate across workplaces, no matter what they are when we're working communally, collaboratively in close contact, like I mean, that is baseline. Yeah. Baseline. And I think people understand when information is transparent and shared. I remember when I was at RSA and we had just beautiful coffee makers. We had fruit available every day. It was just, it was a lovely environment that you know, we appreciate the work you do and we are providing this for you, for your comfort. Going into a public sector, there was not a coffee maker to be found. And you think that, oh, well, they're not respecting me as much. It's like, no, we are investing in what is is critical for us to deliver to our patients or to our ridership. Or, you know, we will, we respect you in different ways. We are, you know, Mm. giving you different work opportunities. We are supporting you in different ways. We're being, you know, flexible in our approach, like whatever those pieces were, it's just understanding that it's not that we don't want to provide coffee and, and, you know, fruits and snacks and whatever. It's just, we can't invest in that way. We really need to invest in our, and clients or our ridership or whatever that, that yeah. public sector you know, client is. So it just understanding that and going, yeah, actually, I'd rather have more nurses on the floor than, you know, free coffee. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it goes back to what you were saying about information being transparent and and shared, right? It's critical, right? And that it's a, it's a constant flow because people mm-hmm. will go negative in the absence of information, exactly. right? They will make their own conclusions. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's shift a little bit because something else that I really am excited to dig into you had told me about a really incredible project you did when you were at Sinai Health System around mm-hmm. a values discovery and that you've actually embarked on a similar project around values discovery at Centennial. Phyllis. Yes. Phyllis. Oh, it, it was a great piece of work. And, you know, when you think about core values, those are, you know, the core values and, and the behavioral attributes that align to those core values really should guide everything you do. It should guide decision-making. It should guide where you make investments. It should guide, you know, how you engage and treat others. And to very openly quote my former leader there, 
it's the waters that you swim in. It is, you know, you know, the destination that you're going to, you have your mission, you have your vision, but it's how you get there. And it can either help take you towards, you know, your goals and really support you. And the work that we did, oh, it was over, gosh, about an eight to 10 month period. And it really was around who are those individuals that are across the institution that have that je ne sais quoi. It is just they, if you could get a group of them and start a new colony somewhere, you would, it would be utopia because they were just, they lived those unexpressed values in, in everyday interactions. And we spent a lot of time with those people that were sort of identified. And we really excavated and understood what were those words and those behaviors that really spoke to who we were as a Sinai Health System. And then we took all of that great work and we ran multiple workshops and open houses. And we gave everybody an opportunity to really reflect and speak to and and identify how they either these values show up in day-to-day interactions or how they're a little bit more aspirational. And this is where we really need to work towards. Then once we got all of that distilled into really clean, simple, plain language, it started to be embedded in you know, how we lead ourselves, how we led others, how did it influence policies and processes and systems. And it really started to become common everyday vernacular where you would really speak to, you know, Lisa, I love what you did there. That really spoke to our value of X, or I feel that I'm not being supported over here. And that's really incongruent with our value of why. Like it started to become a really great part of our day-to-day dialogue. So when I came here to Centennial, one of the, the pieces of work that we wanted to do as part of the book of our future, which is is our, our three-year strategy, we really wanted to sort of discover our centennial core values. So that's a piece of work that we're going to be starting in the summer. And I have no doubt it's going to take us a solid, you know, six to eight months to really do it right. And, you know, what's most important in this work is all about making sure that everybody has a voice. Everybody is able to be a part of this initiative because the worst thing to me is that you get a bunch of executives in a room and go, what about this word? Well, what about that word? I like this word better. Okay, let's go with that as a value. And then institution, here's your core values. And people go, that's not my core value or that doesn't resonate with me. So making sure that we've got a really good bubbling up of information and, and, and insight so that we can bring something together that everybody feels that they've been a part of and they see themselves in. What a what a beautiful initiative. And and it really sounds like there's a lot of thought in your previous exa- example with Sinai. And then now hear about this this effort to distill the language, make it, make it really clear and embed it into the the vernacular of the organization. Yeah. I call it embedded thread. You know, I love that. It's, it's like sneaking vegetables into your, you know, your toddler's macaroni. <laughs> like, how do you? You blend them in the sauce. <laughs> it's great. Yes. Yeah, so it just becomes yeah. kind of magical about how people adopt the language and it, and it just becomes known. 
something that came up for me. Love to know your take on it. The other, the other thing about this process you've described is, is in some organizations that I, that I consult with and have worked with, uh, sometimes I'll see that case where a set of executives, the senior leadership team has maybe worked with an outside consultant, but on their own in a vacuum, come up with a set of values. Mm-hmm. And, okay. You know, they're typically, there's nothing really controversial. They're a good set of values, right? And they might yep. have little descriptors and everything. And from there though, then there's this work around defining what do these look like in action around here in this organization? So it's yeah. you know, come up the values. We want everybody to have respect to, to you know, yeah. the ethical. Da, da, da. Take really. Yeah. Integrity. Yeah. What does this look like in action versus, mm-hmm. you know, what I'm hearing from you is it's let's look at what we see people doing in the first place that are, you use this word, that are living these unexpressed values. And now we're going to articulate them. Yes. Yes, for sure. And I think, you know, where the executives or senior leader have a role to play is they kind of can put that big sandbox together. Like what sort of fits within that, you know, large sandbox. So if the value was cost containment at every <laughs> at every opportunity, it's like, yeah, that's not really the kind of institution that we are or the culture that we're trying to foster here. So, you know, they can kind of put that overall big sandbox together. And that's kind of where we play in. But I think where people feel that they've been able to weigh in and really identify and feel that they're included and feel that they are part of this organization or this institution. And, you know, quoting another former colleague, this is really tough work. Having a set of institutional and core values, it's Better not to do it if you're not going to live to it, because then it becomes, okay, you just said integrity is a value, yet I see you doing this and you, you're you going to be called out on it. So it's really critical if you're going to be doing this really hard legwork and putting these values together, putting these core behavioral attributes that, you know, what do they look like in day-to-day life and day-to-day practice? then you you need to put your money where your mouth is. And it is, if you're not going to be willing to do that, then it's almost better not to do the work. You're here. I think there's a lot of, a lot of wisdom to that statement. So what stage are you at currently with it at Centennial? Oh, very, very early stages. Okay. So we're, yeah, we're just in the process of, you know, building out kind of like the overall project and game plan. And, you know, within the education sector, the the summers tend to be very, very low key. All of our full-time faculty are on vacation. This is where a lot of people take their time off. Right. So we really don't want to do a whole lot that is other than, you know, I think we'll do a good, strong literary review. So taking a look at all of our documents and seeing what are those kind of themes that do bubble up. So looking at our Indigenous strategic framework, our anti-Black racism task force recommendations, looking at our business plan and priorities, our strategy, our sustainability strategy, our academic plan, like looking at all these great published documents and what are some of those pieces that kind of bubble up. And I think that's a good piece of work that we'll be able to do this summer. We can start to do some early core interviews and then really hit the ground running in the fall. Sounds like a a great place to start, certainly, you know, with what we already have. (laughs) 
know? Yeah, yeah, because there's there's a thread of language that goes that really permeates throughout those documents. I think speaks to a little bit of who we are, and I think we can start to distill some of the ideation from there. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. What you know? So when you think about values discovery in general, and what we've been talking about, how do you bring them to life? Take them off mm-hmm. the wall, so to speak. What would, what's your biggest piece of advice for somebody who who's listening and has just been charged with? There are no values so far identified. Where yeah. should it start? Like, what's that one place? Yeah, well, definitely you've got to get stakeholder alignment. So this work, again, does not, it can't be successful if you don't have your leaders really buying into this this work that it needs, that it's necessary and that it is, you know, the right investment of, of time, resources, and energy. So you've got to make sure that you've got the right champions. And so, I mean, I think that's one very key piece of work. And also, you know, once you've done all the work and you've, you've built it out and you've got it beautifully articulated and it's on the wall, get it off the wall. (laughs) So we had it, In every meeting room, we had it, we did have it on the wall in many places, but we had, you know, sort of laminated paper in each of the meeting rooms where it was, it was front and center. It wasn't something that sort of sat on a shelf. It wasn't something that was in just the boardroom in this beautiful ornate frame. It was something that really we called out. And I remember when I was at Metrolinks as well, we did have values-based recognition awards. And I think that's mm-hmm. another great piece of work that I would want to build out here as well. So when you have somebody that is truly living that value or a group that is truly living that value, how do you acknowledge and recognize that and and really give them that appreciation for how they do their work within the institution and how they kind of live that and and demonstrate the impact that that has on others? I think that's another way that it really can bring it to life. It's part of that, really that embedding, you know, 100%. getting it into the ecosystem. So yeah, I agree. Yes. You know, it gets eyeballs on it too, to, to fully appreciate and understand it better. What does this look like? Yeah, it's it's that, you know, it's like the business plan that's dog-eared. You have to be, you know, if it's crisp and clean, it's like all of our collective agreements. I mean, mine are like marked up and put, you know, I've got stickies all over them. If it's crisp and clean and never been open, that's a, that's a concern. So, you know, your values and, and your business plans, like these are things that these are living documents. We need to always be referencing, looking at them, making sure that we're tied and aligned into them. So these are things that you want to make sure that they become living artifacts rather than just nice pictures on a wall. Living artifacts. I'm going to write that down. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Lynn. I can't believe it, but we are we are at the end of our time together. Wow. It just flew. I mean, we could certainly explore the whole values piece even further. I feel like we were just scratching the surface. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, so happy to thank you. And I really appreciated the time to, as I said earlier, sort of take myself out of day to day and have these great conversations. So thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to, I'm happy to have been here. My pleasure. There's a lot of gold in the conversation. I know people will appreciate. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your colleagues. 
Better yet, head over to iTunes and let us know. When you subscribe and leave me a five-star review, not only do I glow from within, but more people will learn about the show and why they should listen. Until next time, keep telling the talent management truth.